Today's episode is brought to you by Simple Contact. Get $30 off your contacts at simplecontacts.com slash best or enter the code best at checkout. And I also want to tell you about The Brave Podcast. The Brave Podcast is hosted by the most interesting man in podcasting, comedian and social commentator, Felonious Monk. The Brave tells the stories of eight diverse young activists who are creating solidarity and rising up to demand change. Find The Brave on Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts, or check it out at thebraveriseup.com. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about some of the adversities facing disabled people, from labor rights, to healthcare accessibility, to incarceration. Clips today come from Talk Poverty Radio, Big Think, Propaganda, The Laura Flanders Show, and Off Kilter, but first we're going to hear the trailer for the film Bottom Dollars. People with disabilities are not capable of working. That's the biggest lie I ever heard. The minimum wage is offered to everybody, except for people with disabilities. People with disabilities are being paid less than minimum wage. On average, under $2 an hour across the country. How would you like to work for two weeks and come out with a $6 check? It's all based on the assumption that they're less capable than other individuals. No, it's not fair. It could be perfectly legal. The management is making very, very significant six-figure salaries. Companies have told us that if they had to pay half of minimum wage, that they would probably go bankrupt. So they're just building this own business for themselves, don't you think? I'm a person with a disability, and I've been able to you know, find jobs that pay me um, what I deserve. I may have a disability, but I can still work. I oversee the Bob Boyd Honda Facebook page. It's great. I interact with customers. I talk to the workers. I get paid. I love it. I work at Powell's Bookstore. I use assistive technology to help me do what I cannot do physically. I am super proud of my job. I'm in the shipping and receiving at the Boston Children's Hospital. Here I am today, a business owner. I own Pop and Joe's Kettle Corn. You know the greatest disability there is? It is low expectation. People with disabilities can be paid sub-minimum wage. We don't feel that's right. There's no reason to pay us less than the minimum wage. When I'm working, I felt that I should be paid as an equal person. Rooted in Rights presents an original documentary. Bottom Dollars. For the full film, go to bottomdollarsmovie.com. So Cheryl Bates-Harris, you are an expert on this issue, on disability law and disability rights. Help us understand, how is it legal that people with disabilities can be paid less than the federal minimum wage that applies to everyone else? Well, it goes back to um, a post-war piece of legislation um, where 
men were primarily the wage earners and we had primarily a manufacturing economy. So as veterans returned from war with um, injuries that would limit their ability to work in a manufacturing society, the 14C provision was put into place to allow men the dignity to continue working um, even if they were not quote unquote as productive as others. So um, that's how it started. Unfortunately, it was not until we deinstitutionalized children and they needed a place to go during the day that people really realized that this was a loophole that would allow them to pay people less than minimum wage if they brought work in for those individuals to do. And one of the pieces of history that the film explores is really the, the rise of what are often called sheltered workshops. Um, Jordan, what are sheltered workshops? And, and tell us a little bit of, of how they came into into place. Well, that's a, a question I asked a lot over the last year, and I got a lot of different answers about who how you define a sheltered workshop. There's no dictionary definition of it. Um, and the sheltered workshops are not even the whole story. There are there are places that are not uh, workshops where people go that can be paid subminimum wage. There are other um, types of work that make use of this. But a sheltered workshop is the the most famous example. And essentially, what that is is uh, picture a factory down a road that you don't normally drive down um, that people with disabilities go for you know as Cheryl says for a period of time during the day. Um, the idea is that they will go there, um, they'll be able to work on contracts that get brought in from the outside. It's usually manufacturing, shredding papers, um, sorting parts, things like that. Um, and then the idea is that people will go there and this will give them an opportunity to earn a little bit of money, get some job tra- training skills, get some social skills, and then over a period of time, then be able to transition out to some kind of community employment. That does happen occasionally, um, and sometimes it happens um, it just sometimes it happens over a very, very long period of time. There's a gentleman in the film from Mississippi who had been at a workshop for 15 years, um, this gentleman named Tillman Mitchell from Vicksburg. And at the end of those 15 years, he was finally placed in a community job. They only started looking for him in that last year of that 15 years. And the job they found for him was he's a, a houseman at a La Quinta Inn. And I met Tillman. There's no question in my mind, it would not take 15 years for him to learn how to wipe down a vending area or a vacuum a floor. I just don't believe that. And that seems to be the um, the pattern that we found. And Cheryl can talk more about this because she did the, the investigations over time at NDRN that looked at a lot of these examples of people being in workshops for 10, 20, 30 years. It, that doesn't sound like a training program to me. Cheryl, you argue in the film that uh, sheltered workshops started for the right reason, but that they have since become an outdated model of segregation. What did you mean by that? And, and tell us a little bit more about these workshops and the investigations that NDRN has done. Well, the workshops originally started, I'm going to say, the late 50s, 60s, and certainly they flourished in the 70s. And the thought then was we were just starting to educate children in public schools. And so these were kids that parents had kept out of institutions that needed a place to go during the day. So when somebody thought about, well, let's try to teach them some job skills and think about employment, um, that's when the, the 14C was discovered. And what's happened, unfortunately, is businesses contract work to the sheltered workshops 
and the businesses make good money off of these contracts. So they have an incentive to keep people there in order to get the production work done. And so instead of being a train and place model, individuals are, it's, it's a road to nowhere. People end up in the sheltered workshops. Most people will either die or retire from sheltered workshops. And what, I mean, um, Jordan mentioned uh, work that might involve wiping down countertops, but what types of work are people frequently doing in these workshops? I know it can range. It's very um, tedious, repetitive, and low-skilled work. Um, assembly, um, counting out nuts and bolts for like the furniture that you put together that you buy from Ikea. Um, shredding newspapers is very common. Um, stringing linoleum tiles together. Um, putting product samples together. Um, and the, the most unfortunate part is that the work that comes in, everybody has to do it. People don't get to choose the kinds of jobs they do, nor do they get to um, nor are they matched with their skills and abilities. And that's consequently the reason of the subminimum wage. People don't have dexterity skills for a lot of these. People don't have any interest in it. They get bored. Um, it's just, you know, not a good job match. And they're, they're stuck. And that's, that is definitely a theme that recurs throughout the film. Let's play a little bit of tape from one worker describing how the work he was assigned to do um, didn't match at all with, uh, with his skills or abilities. My name is Lorraine Jackson. Sometimes I think they match the people up with the wrong task because they don't really want to take the time to match them to what they can do. Like when I was in the shelter workshop, they had me bending over, putting clothes in the barrel. I had CP, so... I couldn't bend over and then get myself back up. It took me a while to get myself back up. Uh, I had to ask somebody to get me up so I can reposition myself and then pick up some clothing and then bend back down to put it in a bear. And after I get got that check, of $2.50 for working in a hot workshop with hot big fans, I said, I quit. I can go find me something else to do. So in addition to the uh, mismatch of work that people can be assigned to do, um, people offer also are paid very little. And obviously, that's the thrust of this film, that the title of the film is Bottom Dollars, which couldn't sum up better what's going on here. But how much do people actually get paid for this work, Jordan? Well, the none of this is really a secret. If you go to the Department of Labor's website, they have a spreadsheet where it actually shows um, where every single uh, 14C holder is in the entire country. And so what we did is we took that and we did a freedom of information request. And we looked at uh, several... Um, shelter workshops, some of them which appear in the film and others which were just the biggest ones um, by number of people employed. And we saw um, some wages that were above minimum wage in the $9 area. We saw some that were more around the federal minimum wage. But then there were thousands and thousands and thousands of people being paid $5 an hour, $3 an hour, $2 an hour, 50 cents an hour down to 2 cents an hour, 3 cents an hour. 2 cents an hour. 2 cents an hour. 
And there are people in the film who actually describe after a, a day of um, incredibly tedious, as you mentioned, Cheryl, and also in some cases somewhat grueling work because of the mismatch with their abilities or skills, um, receiving their paycheck and, and it ends up being like $2.50 or $5 for an entire pay period. Yeah. And there is a, a gentleman we ran into named Laron Jackson. Um, a clip we just played and he um, worked in a sheltered workshop and he was mi- completely mismatched they had him um, gathering up clothes and putting it in the barrel and then he would they would basically weigh the barrel at the end of the day and then pay him based on that and he has cerebral palsy he doesn't have great dexterity um, he describes it pretty well in the film how kind of ridiculous it was that he was assigned this job and what I think about when I think about Laurent is that he is now working at Disability Rights Mississippi. He is now an advocate who goes into sheltered workshops to help people get out. He's uh, has his undergrad degree and he's planning to go to law school. So we we had a guy who will probably go to law school, get an advanced degree, and become a lawyer one day. And we thought it would be a good idea to put him in the sheltered workshop and assign him to sore clothing. Um, that doesn't strike me as starting with high expectations for someone or starting with what uh, someone's dreams are, what they want to do. comedian and having a disability, I didn't find many challenges with work. Being someone who dreams on TV, being someone who is a writer, being someone who is an actress, I feel like entertainment and broadcast news ignore the fact that ADA also applies to them. This was signed 25 years ago, and most workplaces still ignore its existence. They still think that accommodating is an option because of the word reasonable accommodations. And I work with people with disabilities who are in their 20s and 30s, or they're just graduating college, and they're terrified for the person interviewing them to know they have a disability. They're trying so hard to get through the process and pass as able. That's not the world that we should live in at all. And that is the reality for so many people. If you turn on the TV, we're invisible. We're not present on daytime talk shows, panel shows, soap operas, morning news shows. We're not the anchors. We're not the hosts. We're not even guest co-hosts. And I was watching a very famous cable news woman who's known for her intersectionality. She said live on television, we cannot invite wheelchair users into the studio because our studio is not accessible. I had been in that studio. It was built two years ago. Why are they still building studios that are not accessible in this day and age? Why? Because we're not thought of. We're not thought of. When people talk about diversity, they're not talking about people with disabilities. They're not. We've been completely run over in the intersection of intersectionality. You would think since we're the largest minority that everyone bumps into at least one disabled people and they know disabled people. Guess what? That's not the reality. I don't know how. 
I don't know why, but I've had people tell me, you know, he never saw anyone like you before. And I think it comes back to storybooks, to television, to really actively making sure that it's not one character for one episode in a wheelchair that disappears the next day. Look at Sesame Street. When I was growing up, Sesame Street had a deaf woman. That changed my perception. She was part of this normal world that has Muppets, but like this world that I was so accustomed to, just like old people like Mr. Hooper who died and taught me what death was. And those images are gone. So there's a couple of characters that do have disabilities sprinkled throughout children's television, but it's not something that you're seeing often enough. If you wear contacts, then you're familiar with the costs that come with the simple act of renewing your prescription. But now Simple Contacts is here to simplify the process and save you time and money. With Simple Contacts, you can renew your existing prescription by taking a fast, self-guided vision test right at home for only 20 bucks, a fraction of the price of going to your eye doctor. Now, to be clear, they're not trying to replace your periodic full eye health exams since they don't write new prescriptions or fully examine eye health. But when all you need is to quickly check to see that your current current prescription is still up to date so that you can order a new set of contacts, Simple Contacts is a no-brainer. After you take the vision test, a licensed ophthalmologist reviews it to make sure your eyes look healthy and that your vision hasn't changed. Then you're ready to order your lenses from their selection, which includes all of the brands and types of lenses you're familiar with. And if you need more convincing, you can check out their 4,500 ratings on the App Store with an average of 4.8 out of 5 stars. So with all that convenience and savings baked right in, the only way it could get better is with a special offer for my listeners. You can get $30 off your contacts by going to simplecontacts.com slash best. That link is there for you right in the show notes of this episode, or you can use the offer code best during checkout. Again, you can use the link in the show notes, simplecontacts.com slash best, or use the offer code best at checkout for $30 off. Today, we're talking about how prisons are designed to be invisible. This next story shines a light on one part of that system, how a third of people in prison have at least one disability, and how that's not part of the story most people hear about prisons. Our media and lawmakers don't often link these two issues, incarceration and disabilities. Cheryl Green shares this next story. Cheryl understands the power of pop culture in shaping public perception of marginalized people. She's a filmmaker. She just shot a documentary about artists who have traumatic brain injuries. Just a warning, this story has discussion of some pretty harsh realities. Cheryl will be talking about racist and ableist trauma, profiling, and a history of abuse. If you don't think you want to hear about that right now, just come back to this another time. Before the Declaration of Independence was even signed, the fledgling United States of America already had mental institutions, taking people considered insane out of their homes and tucking them into specialized hospitals. Sometimes they got treatment, sometimes they were shackled, starved, and abused. People with psychiatric disabilities were jailed more often than placed in hospitals in the early days. In the 1830s, 
a Boston school teacher named Dorothea Dix took a job teaching people in prison in Massachusetts. While she didn't go into the job as an activist, what she saw in the prison appalled her. She started to report on how living conditions were brutal and the people in prison, many with psychiatric disabilities, were abused and starved by their jailers. She started a movement that expanded the reach of our psychiatric hospitals, but it was no miracle fix. While a lot has changed in the last 180 years, patterns of abuse in long-term care facilities and jails repeat endlessly to this day. Right now, in the United States, there are more people with psychiatric disabilities in jail or prison than there are in psych hospitals, and incarcerated populations represent people with a huge array of physical, cognitive, and sensory impairments and deaf people. If she were around today, Dorothea Dix would be outraged at how it's once again easier to wind up behind bars than in a specialized hospital. Our current incarceration rates has something to do with our response to the abuse of institutions. In 1955, President John F. Kennedy signed the Community Mental Health Act, a law intended to end the isolation and segregation of disabled people in archaic institutions by pushing funding out of institutions and into home and community-based care. Almost every American family at some stage will experience or has experienced a case of mental affliction. And we have to offer something more than crowded custodial care in our state institutions. Our task is to prevent these conditions. Our next is to treat them more effectively and sympathetically in the patient's own community. I hope the Congress will act on this bill. But even as the nation shut down institutions, funding for community care has still not reached levels needed to keep most people with complex care needs in their homes. We shuttered the warehouses and gave people nowhere to go. And as a culture, we never address the ableist biases that led us to want to lock up disabled people in the first place. The politics of who gets assigned a label of disability ties into racism, homophobia, and sexism. Until the 1970s, homosexuality was considered a mental illness and for many years a crime. Then during lunch, Ralph showed him some pornographic pictures. Jimmy knew he shouldn't be interested, but, well, he was curious. What Jimmy didn't know was that Ralph was sick, a sickness that was not visible like smallpox, but no less dangerous and contagious, a sickness of the mind. You see, Ralph was a homosexual, a person who demands an intimate relationship with members of their own sex. Many people who were LGBT were incarcerated in prisons and psych wards. Likewise, 19th century doctors had great confidence that the only reason an enslaved African or African-American might run away was because they must be suffering an alleged mental illness that they called drapetomania. And we all know the fabulous diagnosis of hysteria, something that can only happen to someone with a uterus. In early 20th century thinking, someone's uterus supposedly detached from its spot in the abdomen navigated itself to the brain and destroyed the person's ability to think rationally. Today, these biases still all work tragically in tandem. Estimates now find that between one-half and one-third of people killed by police have a disability. For me, these aren't just distant statistics. They're a constant danger in my own community of people with disabilities from traumatic brain injury. 
I've seen friends with traumatic brain injuries be incarcerated instead of getting rehab when they've spiraled into houselessness, driving under the influence, attempting suicide, and abusing drugs, all common for a lot of people with TBI. Disability and deafness are often criminalized when people don't walk, talk, or respond to police in the way the officers expect them to. When I think specifically about why people who acquire their disability as adults like I did are more likely to wind up in jail than non-disabled people, I think back to the time I got kicked off an airplane in 2013. This was back when I used to get completely devastated when anyone changed my plans, something the brain injury really brought out in me. I had requested pre-boarding, and then to have someone hoist my bag into the overhead bin for me, both of which are my rights under the law. They refused, and I imploded. I didn't want to cause a fuss, so I withdrew into a little ball. As my rage and frustration built, I crushed my glasses in my fist, obliterating them, and I refused to speak for fear that I'd only be able to scream. I was trying to make myself silent and invisible. But that was too much for the flight crew. They demanded I leave the plane, saying I was, quote, a safety hazard, and that the pilot refused to fly with someone who refused to communicate. When I made it back to the waiting area, I was in a sobbing rage. I threw my bags down and started cussing at the top of my lungs. Luckily, in cases of disability-related incidents, airlines are required by law to call in a specially trained complaints resolution official. The glasses I'd crushed had prism lenses to point my eyes in the same direction. Without them, the people, carts, and rolling bags were visually disorienting, and I kept getting lost trying to walk in a straight line. So the official held my hand as we walked to keep me from running into anyone. He got me a new ticket on the next flight. Then he led me to the employee lounge and let me wait there. When I got on my flight five hours later, I was too exhausted to care about my own frustrations. That made it easier to stay calm and follow orders and sit still. Thinking back to this incident, I know even though it wasn't a good situation, it could have turned out so much worse. Airports aren't exempt from police and TSA brutality. What kept it from escalating to that? honestly believe it had a lot to do with the fact that I'm a small, cisgender, white woman. It's my privilege that kept me from being incarcerated. A lot of disabled people don't wind up as lucky as I was that day. The incarcerated population is three to four times more likely to report having a disability than non-incarcerated people. Storytellers from the AVID Prison Project report barriers they face that are pretty universal, such as having their wheelchairs taken away, being refused medical attention or prescriptions, and being punished and isolated instead of given accommodations, many of which are inexpensive and straightforward. Last year, I listened to activists and artists on a panel about race, disability, art, and incarceration held in Seattle. Dorian Taylor talked about their experiences being abused as a child and how their responses to abuse was seen as just acting out. Well, first of all, I just um, I want to start out by saying that um, I feel really honored to be here because um, statistically, I should not be here right now. That is something that I think is important to start off this conversation with, is that statistically, these systems are designed to keep people 
like myself away from these environments, is to keep me institutionalized. One thing that is different when people mention the school to prison pipelines and when they, they mention um, different forms of incarceration is that when you grow up like I did, you were never told that you could do anything besides end up in an institution. My incarceration started with mental institutions at nine years old. As a black Native American child labeled mentally ill instead of the victim of abuse, they got no counseling and care. Instead, they got incarceration in a mental institution and chemical incarceration through psychiatric drugs, leading to a cycle of isolation and further abuse. I used to go to a brain injury support group. Not long after my airport incident, a police chief came to our meeting to talk about police encounters. She told us about how we should wear medical alert bracelets listing our disabilities so officers can ideally view us as disabled, not non-compliant. I ordered one online that same day. I was scared I might lash out in public again. I was afraid of a cop touching me. I was afraid of a cop punishing me for imploding and not responding, even though for me, it would be self-preservation. The bracelet said to speak slowly, quietly, and calmly. It said to write things down. I can't remember what else is said because I lost it. As many disability rights and justice activists state, this is not a matter of individual people's personal shortcomings, flaws, or failures. Disability and deafness are not, quote, what's wrong with you. Being disabled or deaf means existing in and creatively adapting to an inaccessible world while honoring and celebrating all aspects of your identity. Nowadays, I have much more self-control and I can communicate better under stress. With these added privileges, I don't have fear around my own situation anymore because I pass as non-disabled. Thanks are due to disability justice activists, like those using the hashtag DangerouslyDisabled on Twitter, to share first-hand experiences around policing and incarcerating disabled and deaf people. Usually, in our media and pop culture, disability is considered a downer of a subject. Disability stories are considered niche. But they're not niche. Disabled people exist in every culture and community in the U.S. The imperative that we be hidden away in locked buildings is based on a culture's values, not a universal inevitability. It's up to us to keep up the fight for basic rights such as living in the community. And we can't stop there because disability rights are only part of one step in the call for disability justice. everyone just a quick non-commercial announcement i want you to hear i am excited to say that we are now publishing the show on youtube in addition to everywhere else we always have uh, if you've never thought to listen to podcasts on youtube you might think it sounds a little strange but plenty of people do in fact listen to podcasts via youtube so it's become sort of a best practices to just put your shows up there as well uh, one side benefit though is that we now get to take advantage of the automatic transcriptions that youtube creates for video on their platform. 
And that's very fitting for this episode, as I'm sure you can imagine, because it could be quite useful for the hearing impaired or literally anyone else who might ever want to read along with the show. And of course, I admit it is not exactly a replacement for full transcriptions, but I have just never had the budget to pay for a transcription service, so this is the best we can do with what we have. Now, this is where you come in. First of all, if there is anyone you know who you think might like the show and would be interested in listening to it or reading the captions from it on YouTube, please spread the word. You know, maybe someone who has no idea what a podcast is and never will, but knows how to use YouTube. Maybe this is how they can listen to the show. Secondly, there is also an opportunity for you to volunteer your time to help out the caption reading community. YouTube's transcription is pretty good, but it is not awesome. So you get the best results when a human can go over the computer-generated rough draft with an editor's eye. Now, there's a link in the show notes of this episode, and you know if this experiment goes well, I'll just keep it in the show notes of all future episodes, that you can follow to get to the list of Best of Left videos on YouTube that need someone to go over their captions. If that sounds like something you would like to try, go ahead and check it out. You may very well end up helping someone to get information from this show that they would never get anywhere else, and that's a good thing. So again, if you want to give it a try, I think it's, it's sort of fun to listen along to the show and help you know make some edits to the captions. It, it's, it's sort of a fun system. I tried it myself. So if you'd like to donate some time and help clean up our captions, it would be very much appreciated. Thanks in advance for your help. Safety. Every law enforcement officer and every politician will tell you that they're for it. And yet for many, police aren't the answer. They're a problem in the community. And today's policymakers are only making things worse. If what we're doing isn't making many of us safer, what might? Our next guest has gone on a search. Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samara Sinha describes herself as a queer, disabled writer, performer, poet, healer and teacher. Inspired by poets June Jordan, Suhair Hamad, and what she calls the whole women of color pantheon, she's the author of several books of poetry, including Consensual Genocide and the Lambda Award-winning Love Cake. She's a new book of poetry, Body Map, and a memoir, Dirty River, out this year. She also performs with the group Mangoes with Chili. She's an editor, too, of the book Re The Revolution Starts at Home, Confronting Intimate Violence in activist communities, a book that grapples with the difficult ideas of addressing violence without police. We also discovered that we shared a meal together a few <laughs> years ago in Toronto, many years ago. I'm happy to see you again, Leah. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. Let's talk a little bit about this notion of safety, and we'll come back to Let's. other things. Um, what does it mean to you? Um, I think that there are a million survivors of violence out there. I think that most people have survived some form of abuse or violence. Um, I think that as feminists, we've been talking about that at least since the 70s and beyond. And I think that in the criminal legal system, which I don't call the criminal justice system because it doesn't bring it, no one ever asks survivors of violence what they need to have safety, justice, and healing in their lives. Um, we're told as survivors of violence that, yay, second wave white um, liberal feminism works, so we get to call the cops and send our abusers to prison. I don't know a single survivor who's ever called the police um, to get justice. And of the ones that I've read about, I don't know a single one who said, yeah, my experience in the criminal legal system was great and I got what I needed. Mm. 
um, we're, we're basically being used um, to create more prisons and to build mass incarceration. Explain and what you mean by that. Um, I think that a lot of, like a lot of feminists of color, I, I understand why a lot of feminists in the 70s and 80s pushed for things like the criminalization of domestic violence and childhood sexual abuse. But what black and brown feminists know is that bringing more police into our communities never keeps us safe. Mm-hmm. Um, my good friend, Ajaris Dixon, who worked for many years at Audrey Lord Project, talks about how um, what we're calling transformative justice is nothing new. She's like, my father is a black man from Louisiana. Growing up, the police were the Klan and still are. Um, and he's like, that's not who we called when there was intimate partner abuse in our communities. That hasn't changed. Is that where the artist and poet imagination comes <laughs> in? Or what else might we do? What else have other communities mm-hmm. done? One thing that I'm really grateful for, so I'm about to be 40, which means I came up as an activist and an organizer in the 90s. And I still, back then, I would run into, um, you know, in whatever movement spaces we were part of, a little bit of the, oh, cultural works, this very feminized, unimportant thing. Um, I still remember trying to organize a free Mumia rally in 1996, and there was some old white Bolshevik guy who was like, and we wanted to have, we were young people of color, and we were like, we want to have MCs and hip-hop artists and poets. And he was like, that's not how you do a proper rally. You sell the paper. And we were like, you're racist and irrelevant. Um, I think that cultural work still is minimized, but I think that it goes beyond just being the entertainment at the rally. I think it is just what you said about, um, I mean, Dan DePrima once said that the only war that matters is the war of the imagination. And I think that it's very easy when we are surviving and not surviving multiple forms of violence all the time to focus on the power that we don't have. Um, one thing that the, that the Allied Media Conference, which is a grassroots media conference I work with, um, stresses in how we organize is that we focus on where we're powerful, not where we're powerless. I think the imagination is one place that where we're powerful. And I think that we don't have the state, we don't have the prisons, we don't have the cops, thank God. Um, what we do have is the wild, queer, feminist of color, decolonial imagination. And what difference does your disability make and the disability mm. rights movement mm. make? I, I heard you begin to talk about it. I think it's important. Right. We actually use the term disability justice because the disability rights movement, um, while it's incredibly important and I'm grateful for the work those organizers did, has been predominantly a white-dominated single-issue movement. Disability justice as a term was coined by people of color with disabilities who are revolutionaries, um, especially Patricia Byrne and Leroy Moore of Sins Invalid, who got really sick of being marginalized as disabled revolutionary people of color within both white disability rights and um, non-disabled people of color movements. And I would just say everything. Um, <laughs> I, Kara Page, who is a beloved, beloved person who's the ED of Audrey Lord Project right now, she was part of a group called Kindred, um, which still exists, which is black and brown queer Southern healers. And they came together because she was like, we're, organizers are literally dying in the South because of chronic illness and ableism and the relentless pace of our movements that is ableist. So I would say the first thing that's true for our movements is that um, sustainability is a huge issue for us. There's so much that non-disabled activists can learn from disabled people. And that's kind of one of the beginning places. I think a lot of um, non-disabled activists or people who don't identify as disabled yet are used to thinking of disability only in terms of, oh, we need to get a ramp. And that's really important. But they it's it's a really huge cognitive leap for non-disabled folks to become aware that disabled folks have our histories and cultures of resistance. We have crip science. We have incredible organizing skills that non-disabled people need to learn from. I can organize from bed. 
I can organize on the internet. I can organize on crypt time. I can do a lot of miraculous things that are not in a 16 meeting a week relentless schedule. Um, I can do that on no, no money and I am not alone. I'm one of millions of disabled folks who are resisting. And I would say a whole lot of other things about eugenics and the value of our bodies and how it's immensely, the struggle around those issues are immensely connected with anti-prison organizing. And just I would just with. add one other thing has to do with fun. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. I had a disability <laughs> justice activist talk the other day about aging mm. and said to her, her not disabled, they didn't think, colleagues, mm. you want to learn right. how to work your body as it ages, mm -hmm. as if mm. you're lucky it will acquire disabilities learn from us. Oh, I need to say this. My friend Naima Lowe um, said recently, she's like, you know, the thing that non-disabled folks have to learn from us is that we've already survived some of the worst things that can happen. And I don't just mean like what ableism sees as the individual tragedies of our bodies. I mean, surviving ableism and capitalism, and we know how to do it. And we are thriving and we are surviving and we're not always surviving, but we are. So yeah, exactly. When that, you know, breakneck speed, burnout, able-bodied activist gets cancer or diabetes or, you know, gets an amputation and is like, oh my God, my life's over. We're there to be like, it actually really isn't, but you need to change the way your life is and the way movements are so we can actually be part of that radical imagination. And we can have fun. And we can have fun. Talk about fun. What do you want to know? Well, you're into it. <laughs> I'm watching you and I'm thinking, you're talking about some of the most intense, mm. hardcore mm -hmm. stuff. Are they? And yet you're clearly relishing it. I'm not dead. <laughs> I was like many survivors who make it to 40. I was not supposed to. I'm going to quote somebody who's going to make you cry. Uh, I mean, June Jordan, right? The revolutionary queer black poet, um, cancer survivor and, you know, cancer not survivor, um, said right after 9-11, some of us did not die. I guess it was our fate to live. So what are we going to do about it? Um, I was talking with my one of my chosen family members, who is also a hardcore survivor, is 42, who painted this cane, and they were like, "We made it, you know. We w and now what do we do with it? We survived, and we have all that knowledge. I'm thankful every day, and not in some weird bougie Christian way. I'm just like, I get to be alive. <laughs> I get to have made it through some of the roughest stuff, and that's not to say that there's not going to be disasters that keep coming. Um, I have a poem in the book called The Worst Thing in the World, which is the truth is it will keep happening. Um, you know, we're about to run out of water in California in a year. Octavia Butler was right. Um, what one thing that we also have power over is our capacity for joy and pleasure. And that's something that queer and trans folks have always held on to is, you know, we don't have to be homonormative. We actually don't have to. We have so much that's about sex and joy and pleasure and the powers of decadence on no money. reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, call Congress to support the Disability Integration Act. 
Last month, 200 activists from the disability rights organization ADAPT put their bodies and lives on the line yet again to fight for justice. Demanding support for a critical civil rights bill called the Disability Integration Act, or DIA, activists demonstrated outside the offices of policy influencer organizations in D.C., including AARP. They blocked ARP employees from leaving in their cars, risking injury and arrest to be heard. The standoff lasted six hours with temperatures in the 90s before police intervened. No one was arrested, but police carried away a man in a wheelchair and took the key from another's powered wheelchair, effectively paralyzing them. It's important to remember that it was disability rights activists that made the news last summer as the Affordable Care Act and Medicare were under attack. The images of people in wheelchairs being physically dragged from the Capitol and from Mitch McConnell's office had the desired effect. Those valiant efforts were critical in a down-to-the-wire victory where millions of Americans, both able-bodied and disabled, would have been affected. Now the disabled community, which makes up nearly 19% of the population, is demanding their former healthcare allies, like AARP, return the favor. In a Think Progress article, ADAPT organizer Bruce Darling said, quote, People, for the first time on national television, saw disabled Americans being dragged away and disappeared. But that, for us, happens every day. They are taken from their homes and forced into institutions. We are just dramatizing the conflict, unquote. Darling is referring to an unfortunate gap in the Americans with Disabilities Act, the need to make it easier for people who require long-term care or long-term services and supports to stay in their homes and communities instead of being institutionalized against their will. The Disability Integration Act, DIA, is civil rights legislation that would address that gap, building on the 25 years of work that ADAPT has done to end the institutional bias and provide seniors and people with disabilities home and community-based services as an alternative to institutionalization. Despite a favorable Supreme Court ruling in 1999 and increased Medicaid funding through the ACA to address this problem, unwanted institutionalization is still rampant in the vast majority of states. The DIA would not amend the ADA, but would strengthen the Supreme Court integration mandate and create federal civil rights laws for those in institutions. Unfortunately, as with everything, the political struggle to pass the DIA comes down to money in politics. Republicans receive donations from the owners of these institutions, and Democrats receive donations from the unions within the institutions. Both have received major donations from the nursing home industry. Even though providing home care services is dramatically cheaper for a state than institutionalization, campaign contributions continue to trump good economics and civil liberties. So what can you do? Call your members of Congress today to let them know you support the DIA. Spread the word about the DIA and the injustice of forced institutionalization on social media using the hashtag DIA today and get involved with ADAPT by visiting ADAPT.org. To learn more about the Disability Integration Act, visit DisabilityIntegrationAct.org. And finally, the National Organization Project, a collaboration between ADAPT and National Council on Independent Living, is collecting personal stories that they can use on Capitol Hill when talking with legislators. To share yours, go to advocacymonitor.com. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if defending the civil rights of all Americans is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about telling Congress to support the Disability Integration Act via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. 
Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. Civil disobedience by people with disabilities is hardly a new phenomenon. To help tell the amazing history of ADAPT, formerly Americans Disabled for Accessible Public Transit, I spoke this week with David Perry, a disability rights journalist who has covered ADAPT and disability activism around the healthcare fight, as well as Anita Cameron, a longtime adapter who's been on the front lines of the ongoing healthcare fight. David, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you for having me on. So uh, just to get right down to it, a lot of folks have seen whether tweets or images or news stories, even even lots on kind of mainstream cable news in the last several weeks of people literally being dragged from wheelchairs, putting their bodies on the line to say, no, this is not what I need and what I'm asking of you as my uh, leaders in this country when it comes to health care. A lot of that has really opened eyes, but this is not anywhere close to the first time that we've seen this kind of civil disobedience by disabled protesters. I would love if you would help us know a little bit of the story of ADAPT. Yeah. Who is ADAPT? Yeah, so I, and I know you're going to have uh, some adapters on later to talk, and that's uh, they'll, they'll, they'll be able to tell you their own experience. But let me talk a little as a journalist and as a historian. Uh, and I want to even go back before ADAPT. So ADAPT, to some extent, you could say it started in 1983 with uh, formally taking that name and protesting inaccessible buses in Denver. So it has a very specific origin in Colorado, and it actually starts 10 years before that when 19 disabled people moved out of nursing homes, institutions, into apartments, again in Colorado, uh, a big a big part of the history of the independent living movement. But what I think people really don't know beyond those specifics is that there is a, a decades-long, uh, almost century-long, uh, maybe not quite, but there's a, going back to the 50s and 60s, there is a history of a disability-related civil rights movement driven by self-advocates with support from family members, politicians, professional staff, church figures, uh, just that, that goes right along and intertwines and intersects with other civil rights movements in our country, whether about the fighting segregation or fighting for uh, LGBTQ rights or any number of these other really important struggles. And the, the disability rights narrative, I think, has been a little bit lost so that when people see disabled bodies being pulled out of wheelchairs, they react with horror, but they often react with horror saying, oh, these poor people, not realizing these adapters are some of the most uh, veteran-skilled civil disobedience in the country. They are putting themselves in that position, forcing politicians to make a choice to arrest them and get the bad publicity, to allow them to sit in and get that kind of publicity, or to change their votes. These are, these are very deliberate powerful, important, uh, classically American acts of civil disobedience with a long history. Well, and you mentioned that it, it originated around transportation and trying to ensure accessibility of transportation. That's a big part of the origin story here of ADAPT actually going back to school buses. That's right. That's right. So if you are a person uh, in a wheelchair, I mean, we could talk about school buses for sure, too, but I, I want to think about just public city buses. Uh, and trains, and, and, and now we're talking a lot about taxis and Uber. 
you may or may not be able to drive. And if, but if you can't drive, you're reliant on public transportation to get you around, or you're literally trapped in your location. Uh, and in the 80s, and really the late 70s, and, and then very formally organizing in 1983, the, the members of this Atlantis community in Denver decided that they were going to focus on buses. They were going to focus on public buses. They were going to get wheelchair ramps on public buses. And they sparked this, this group, ADAPT, which is a decentralized national movement now. There are, they're all over the country. Every chapter runs itself. There are coordinators, but there is no national leader of ADAPT. There is no, uh, there is no kind of single voice. There is no, uh, you know, grand, uh, financial structure with, you know, multi-million dollar endowments or anything, right? These are, these are the classic American decentralized grassroots civil disobedience talking to each other and organizing together and showing up in D.C. So in, in Denver, they wanted to have uh, accessible buses, and they decided the way to do that ultimately was to perform acts of civil disobedience, to literally roll their wheelchairs in front of and behind buses and say, we're not moving until we get a guarantee that you will uh, build ramps on your buses. This is very powerful, right? It's powerful politically. It's powerful symbolically. It's powerful in terms of media narratives. Uh, I think when you when you talk to the adapters, they're very well aware of their origins and their successes, not just in terms of getting people to pay attention, but literally putting ramps on buses. One of my favorite adapt stories is told by Michael Bailey, who is the, uh, a lawyer and the father of a woman with Down syndrome. He's based in Oregon, but he was in Kansas a few years ago, and he was uh, watching people being arrested and being brought into school buses, and the cop was saying, you know, why are you guys making all this fuss? And Michael said, well, you see those ramps on those school buses? You're pulling us, you're arresting us and taking us on. We put those ramps there. And there was this wonderful picture of Don Russell that was on Rachel Maddow. She's a woman in a wheelchair. She's got her fist raised in the air. She was being raised up, uh, being arrested from uh, Senator McConnell's office just the other day. And uh, she was being raised up on a ramp into an accessible, uh, as, as Adapt said to me, an accessible paddy wagon. Uh, that is part of their legacy. That is really part of their legacy, that, that, that government services, even when used to arrest you, must be accessible to people with, uh, with disabilities. I mean, tremendous irony there, right? That the, yeah, the, yeah. The, the vans, the police vehicles that are taking away the protesters who have been arrested are accessible because of those very protesters. That's right. That's right. But ADAPT, ADAPT has a good sense of humor about that. I've, I've talk, we've, we've talked about that a lot, and in part because they... They are going, they're, they're performing civil disobedience, which, which, again, we, we talk about civil disobedience a lot, but I think we don't, uh, we don't necessarily see it in its historical context, right? You, you have a situation that you, uh, feel is unjust, either a law is unjust or, or something will be unjust, and you deliberately go in and you break the law. And you break the law anticipating the consequences of breaking the law, and then, uh, you, you generate publicity and you generate moral outrage and you try to generate policy changes, right? These adapters in DC, when you talk to them, as I, again, I know you're going to, you're going to talk to Anita Cameron, who I believe has more arrests than any other adapter in history. So I'm, I'm excited to hear what she has to say. They, they are deliberately going into a situation where they, they force politicians to make a choice. Will you do the right thing or will you generate the bad publicity by, by, 
hauling wheelchairs off into uh, into buses and police vehicles. You write, for these veteran protesters, federal disability policy is literally a matter of freedom versus incarceration, yeah. life versus death. And that is not, despite what some of the, the healthcare bill's proponents might say, um, it's not histrionic. It's not um, uh, just, you know, trying to throw scary words out there to, to make people uh, think horrible things about this legislation. It is very real for the folks who need Medicaid services and particularly attendant care services, as you, as you described, so that they can truly live independently. Uh, I want to emphasize that those aren't my words. Those are the words of the people that I've been talking to. And if you listen to them chanting and if you read their writing, uh, I think one of the great things that's happened last week is that adapters are getting on the radio and getting in the newspaper and getting on TV, and I hope that continues because they're the people who teach me about uh, where the where the well, what the stakes are. But if you can't, if someone isn't there to get you out of bed, you can't get out of bed. And if you can't get out of bed, you can't live. So then you get put into an institution uh, or you become homeless. And for many of these people without attendant care, their choices are institutionalization. And I want to be very clear that forced institutionalization is a form of incarceration. It is not the same as other forms of incarceration. It is not, uh, you know, we don't want to make kind of loose analogies. But if you have, if your only choices are to live in a nursing home or to not live at all or to live on the streets, that is, that is not voluntary, uh, decision making. And so these adapters, that's why they're willing to, to be arrested, right? That is why they're willing to, um, have their bodies abused. Uh, Bruce Darling, one of the, um, national coordinators who comes out of New York, his, uh, his, he, he was, his blood was literally on the floor, uh, outside McConnell's office, uh, just, I think yesterday, the day before yesterday, Monday, uh, a woman had her knee dislocated by a police officer in Indianapolis, uh, an adapt protester. And there's gonna be more, but the, the other choice is to be shunted aside into these nursing homes to be isolated from the community. So one of the things that you've been doing in the last couple of minutes that I have with you, um, uh, you you have uh, you spend a lot of time tweeting out information that, and, and I would encourage everyone to follow you. Your uh, handle is is Lollard Fish L O L L A R D F I S H. You're one of my my favorite follows on Twitter, particularly on disability issues. But one of the things that you've been using Twitter of late to educate people about is that the images that come out of these dramatic uh, protests. Uh, that the media really have actually started to cover over the past week to two weeks in a way that I, I and many others are greatly appreciative of. Um, these images uh, sort of end up becoming the the memes or um, the symbols of the of the fight of the fight to protect Medicaid to stop the Affordable Care Act from being repealed. And one of the images that has really made the rounds and become one of those sort of signature images representing this debate um, is a, a woman in a wheelchair. The, the shot is actually taken from behind, um, and you can see her hands in handcuffs behind the wheelchair, a truly powerful yeah. image. But something that you have really gone to great lengths to educate people on Twitter about is that this isn't just an image. This is a person, and it's a person who's worth knowing. I would love if you would, would talk a little bit about that and why you think that's important. Yeah, I think um, I think it's one of the things that really, that even, even as I was delighted to see ADAPT, kind of get it to do, uh, I was, 
I'm a historian as well as a journalist, so I wanted to have a historical context. I wanted people to understand this this event didn't just happen, that there's, since 1983 or even earlier, 1978, 1974, this specific group has been doing these actions. I want them to know about disability rights-related civil disobedience. Um, The longest sit-in of a federal building in U.S. history was a disability rights group in the 70s in Berkeley. Uh, We may see longer sit-ins to come. Who who knows? so to, to, for people to know that there's a history here of, of, of activism to give agency to disabled people, which often in our media is taken away. And the other side of that agency is to know that this is a woman, that, that woman, is her name is Stephanie Woodward. She uh, works for the Center for Disability Rights in New York, I think up in Rochester. Uh, she really likes her pink wheelchair. Her glasses match it. Um, we were joking about, uh, uh, she and I, about... Uh, this beautiful black and white version, which the the handcuffs were pink, but the chair was black, and how that was totally wrong, even though it was iconic and powerful, because she, you know, she she, she chose that wheelchair on on purpose. Um, she's funny. She she did finally get to write a piece the other day for Vox, which I was really happy to see. These are people who are are making choices and can talk about their lived experience, but also should be seen as as sort of full agents, right? That that um there was pushback saying, oh, yeah, I don't believe these people are really disabled, or, you know, who wheeled them there was the kind of right-wing, you know, counter to this this kind of, uh, to the, the adapt images. And, and we need to know that that counter's coming and say, no, I'm sorry, that's Stephanie, that's Anita, that's Greg, that's Bruce, that's Laurel, uh, you know, that's these, these actual individuals who are not just objects protesting, but people who are advocating for change, who know a lot more than, than any than I do anyway, um, and certainly than, than most people, and whose voices need to be on the television. I, I was really struck, you know, it, it's always a danger, I think especially among uh, progressives, that we, we spend too much of our time criticizing ourselves or criticizing each other. So I love Rachel Maddow, and I was thrilled that she did a big segment on the history of ADAPT. Thrilled. Great. But at the end of it, I said, you know, I really wish she had had an adapter on air across the table from her to talk to. Uh, and I wish that when CNN is debating the health care bill and they have, you know, 35 people around the table on one of their preposterous huge panels, that at least one <laughs> of them might be a wheelchair user. Uh, and preferably, you know, a wheelchair user uh, of color or, you know, a non-white guy. Um, you know, and so on and so forth, that, that bringing these individuals, it is kind of a, it's not even kind of a problem, it is a problem that I have 17,000 Twitter followers and Stephanie has, uh, I don't know, 3,000. That should be reversed. But I'm the one generating media, so I, you know, people now see me as a, a node, a place to find this kind of news, and I'm trying to use that to refocus direction where it really belongs. We've just heard clips today, starting with a trailer for the film Bottom Dollars, followed by a discussion about the film on Talk Poverty Radio. Big Think asked the question, why are people with disabilities still invisible in the workplace? 
Propaganda looked at the intersection of disability and incarceration. The Laura Flanders Show had a conversation about moving beyond disability rights to disability justice. Our activism for today is in support of the Disability Integration Act. And finally, we just heard Off-Kilter discussing the history of civil disobedience in disability activism. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Yes, my name is Christopher Davis, calling from Greensburg, Pennsylvania. I just listened to your podcast on Russian influence with Trump. I'm a bit disappointed with the best of the left. Much of what I heard in the different segments pretty much involved Trump's attempts to turn Russia into a profit-making endeavor. And I just feel as though best of the left should be doing a little better in trying to debunk a lot of the Russiagate hysteria and using that opportunity as well to see what the media in relation to, to Russiagate as a means to stifle quelch the left to use Russiagate as a weapon against dissent, particularly from the establishment Democrats who have been embarrassed in 2016, embarrassed by the revelations that they were uh, trying to use the DNC as a as tool for Hillary getting elected. Um, and I'm, I was expecting the left. And I think it's time maybe you do a show where we're seeing the realities of Russiagate, particularly in terms of it affecting far left activism, far left programs and ideology that challenge established Democrats, that challenge establishment politics, and particularly with her, and um, really becoming more critical. Um, in particular, that this whole Russia Gate thing has become a industry. It is an industry. It has become money-making. All these writers, all these people are profiteering off of Russiagate at various levels. So it's time to really be critical. I appreciate it. Stay well. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, first of all, Christopher, who we just heard from, was disappointed that I didn't do an episode completely different from the one I set out to do. So I... I take his point uh, to a certain degree, but here's a little story of how that episode about Trump and Russia came to be. Genuinely, I I set out to make an episode about Trump 
and his history of corruption. And when you do that, you cannot help but fall headlong into story after story after story about his long, long history with Russian oligarchs and people who need to launder money and all of that sort of thing. So it just sort of became a Trump-Russia episode, even though I tried to just make a Trump-corruption episode. So, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't going to veer off and dissect how the DNC and MSNBC are spinning Russiagate in, into something completely bizarre. Um, that is an episode. That's, that's a topic that we could talk for a long time about. It just has nothing except the word Russia to do with the episode I intended to make. Also, though, if you look at it in a, in a different way, to be able to make an entire episode about Trump and Russia and have it sound nothing like MSNBC, I feel like really is one way of creating a countervailing narrative, like sort of says something without having to come right out and say something, isn't it? Okay, second thing today, uh, I had two listeners write in. I I, I didn't expect this, I, but I so, suppose I'm not surprised by it. Two listeners wrote in with pretty similar concerns after uh, the uh, Confederacy episode, at the end of which I said something that I don't doubt could have been construed as defending something that was said by a guy who was defending his use of the Confederate flag. Uh, it was the clip I played from uh, last week tonight with John Oliver and sort of dissected that a bit. I have no doubt that plenty of people understood what I said. No doubt that a handful of people or maybe a lot of people misunderstood. It, it's something that is easy to not uh, not be clear enough about. It's, it's sort of a complicated thing I was trying to say. I have no doubt that I, I wasn't clear enough. So let me clarify a quick recap of what was said in, in the clip. Black guy comes up to a white guy, says, why are you holding that Confederate flag? The white guy says, my great grandfather fought under this flag to defend his farm. Black guy says, oh yeah, who worked on that farm? The white guy says, my family did. We were poor. Do you have any idea how expensive slaves were back then? And that's the whole clip, and John Oliver made fun of it and said, you know, hey, if you're trying to argue how expensive slaves were to a black guy, then you know you've lost the argument. And my point was, yeah, it's a terrible, terrible argument. It makes no sense. But if that's what his genuine belief and argument is, then there's value in understanding how he came to that, understanding the mechanics of how his argument works to him so that you can reverse engineer and figure out how to have a conversation with that person and make progress rather than shouting and making things worse. So I, you know, I, I tried to have a conversation about the importance of understanding where a person is coming from. And undoubtedly it came across as sounding like I was open to his idea or saying, oh, you know, actually his argument may have some merit and that is not at all what I meant. So I say a lot, it's really important to understand the difference between uh, explaining something and excusing it. It's really important to be able to understand where people are coming from. And that's a big difference from actually being open to what they're saying or giving merit to what they're saying. So when it comes to argumentation and, and discussion, I believe in the Daryl Davis school of argument. 
which is not really to have an argument at all, but to have a conversation. So I'm going to play just a short clip. This is Daryl Davis uh, being interviewed, and it's from a longer segment. This was actually in the rerun episode that I played recently. So it was from an episode of like a year ago or more. So it was in the rerun. I think it was the last segment, but I'm just going to play a little short piece of it. What specifically, in all the conversations that you've had with these clan guys, what do you think that you do differently that a lot of other people don't? I think what I do differently is I give them a platform to express their views honestly in a safe place where, you know, they're dealing with their alleged enemy, a black person. I give them a space in which they can express their views without fear of attack or retaliation or whatever, and allow them to discuss them and, most importantly, have a conversation with them. You don't have to respect what they're saying, but you need to respect their right to say it. Nobody wants to be wrong. We all want to be right. And so if somebody says something to you that goes against you know, what you have believed from the day you were born, but there's a little spark that says that, that piques your curiosity that you think that person might be right, you know, you're going to begin to shift in that direction. It might not be an overnight turnaround, but over time. I've never gone and said, you know what, you need to get out of this organization, you know, you need to stop this nonsense, blah, 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 or I don't go on, on CNN and talk about them and bash them and, and then tell them to send me their robes and hoods. <laughs> it, 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 that doesn't work. So it's like dog fighting. You get a dog that's already predisposed to being mean. And, you know, there's certain breeds, you know, that have that disposition, say a Rottweiler, a uh, pit bull, what have you. And they take these dogs and they beat these dogs, even beat them even more and make them even meaner. And then they put them in the, uh, in the pit with the, with the other dog to fight. So it's like that. You know, if you have something that's mean and you're mean to it, you're making it meaner. You, you can't beat the meanness out of it. By beating it, you're increasing it. Same thing with hate. You know, if somebody hates you and you're beating on them, you know, they're going to hate you more. It's not like, you know, you, you, I'm going to beat the hate out of you. Uh-uh. But you can drive the hate out with logic and love and respect. Mm-hmm. And that's the example that I have set. And, and for me, it has worked. Now, I strongly recommend that everyone go listen to the full interview. You just Google the terms how to argue Love and Radio. That's the title of the episode and the name of the show. It's a two-part episode. Go download them both, listen to the whole thing. So the Confederate economic argument, that the idea that, well, you know, if my grandfather or great-grandfather was poor and he didn't own a slave, then he wouldn't have fought to support slavery. And that is not a good argument. I said this more than once in the previous episode. It's not a good argument. It doesn't make any sense if you understand more about the world, but it's important to understand that people believe that. And to make this as crystal clear as I possibly can, let me tell you a little um, guilty pleasure that I've had recently. I have just discovered that there are tons and tons of videos on YouTube explaining why people think the earth is flat. Look, I've heard of the Flat Earth Society. They've been around forever. But there seems to be this renaissance of Flat Earth theory. So I came across these videos. I was fascinated like a train, you know, looking at a train wreck. 
and I've watched a whole bunch of them now, and I have learned a lot about why people think the Earth is flat. But that doesn't mean that I have budged in my thinking about the roundness of the planet on which we live by 1% or less, you know? Uh, so to me, the, the flat Earth whole idea is a perfect example of the dangers of a small amount of knowledge. All these people who believe the Earth is flat, they know a little bit about stuff, and they don't know the context. They don't know how to examine this little bit of knowledge that they have. They don't know how to extrapolate from the little bit of knowledge they have. So they just like make some jumping guesses like, well, I know this little bit so I can assume this or that. And they go off in these bizarre and profoundly incorrect directions. So to me, I think that white supremacy is sort of similar not understanding it or having a very little bit of knowledge about what the whole concept of white supremacy is, is going to tend to lead you in very, very wrong directions. So regarding the John Oliver clip, you know, my main point was that you're likely to have better luck trying to understand what a person is saying, you know, rather than just laughing at them. And if I wanted to convince someone that the earth is round, I would want to understand why they think it's flat in order to have a starting place for the conversation. Now, I know some people say, like, look, it's not a debatable point. I'm not willing to have that debate. And that's that's absolutely fine. What I've just laid out is how I think it's best to argue. And I recommend that people make their arguments in this way. But I absolutely stop short of condemning those who just don't feel up to it, you know, using the analogy that Daryl made in, in the clip, you know, if you don't have the emotional capacity, the energy, the time, whatever, to adopt an abused dog, that's fine. I don't blame you. Just don't kick it and make it meaner. If you don't have the patience to debate conservatives or Confederacy defenders or white supremacists or Klansmen or whoever, then I don't blame you. But don't kick them and make them meaner. That's working against the ultimate goal. So having those kinds of conversations doesn't have to be everybody's job. But for those of us with any amount of emotional energy available to engage in that debate with the goal of trying to make individual people and the world as a whole better, I think we should be having those conversations and I think we need to know how to have them. So within reason... I am willing to meet people where they are and hear out their nonsense in an effort to figure out how to bring them back to the path of truth and facts. Like, you know that flat earthers often don't believe in gravity? Like, some do, some don't. It's sort of a mixed bag. But that's the sort of thing that you learn when you watch a bunch of videos explaining why the earth is flat. And it's not so different from Confederacy defenders not believing in white supremacy. I mean, except I'm willing to admit that it's just slightly harder to prove the existence of white supremacy than gravity. You know, but if you've never heard of or don't understand the concept of white supremacy, then you could be forgiven for not understanding how slavery was upheld socially or how lynching became normalized or why segregation w was seen as imperative or why mass incarceration could very well have been seen as inevitable. But the only way, I think, to get someone to understand the facts about the world, whether it's about the world being round or about a lot of it being run by white supremacy, is to meet them where they are 
and try to walk them step by step toward the light. So that's my take on arguments, and I hope I have made it abundantly clear just how open I was or how much merit I was giving to the Confederacy defenders' uh, economic argument about white supremacy. That's going to be it for today. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.